0: Hello and welcome to the Toast Podcast with me, Laura Barton. For our fourth series, we'll be talking about flux and flow, how we navigate change, and the forces that steer our lives. At the tail end of summer, I joined Joan Bakewell in her back garden to drink tea and eat biscuits and discuss the veers and variations of her own course, as she travelled from a childhood in the north of England through more than five decades at the vanguard of broadcasting, writing and politics, to hear in this beautiful space in North London, you didn't begin life in London, though, did you? You began in near Stockport.
1: Yes, I. I grew up. I was born in Heaton Moor in Stockport, and uh, I was part of a sort of social movement of my time, really, because my parents had grown up in Gorton and Salford, both of which were pretty grim places, and aspiringly had moved out to Stockport. Not many people moved to Stockport as an aspiration, social aspiration, but it meant a lot to them because they moved into a house which wasn't an inner-city terrace. And so I was born there, and within three years, their aspirations being such, they moved to a semi-detached. And I've always thought that that move from terrace to semi-detached was the biggest social leap in my lifetime. Now, everybody who hasn't been through that experience and the class distinctions that go with it doesn't quite appreciate that. But every nuance was as expressed in their move from Salford and Gordon to Manchester and to Cheshire.
0: Were you born when they made that move from Terrace to...?
1: I was um, born in in the home in Stockport. OK. So that's where my roots are, and that's where i take my title for the House of Lords. Oh, brilliant. I thought, nobody speaks up for Stockport, I think, time somebody <laughs> did. And I, I'm, I'm quite, I feel very ho- at home when I go back... And I'm pleased to see that they, they've cleaned it up because it was really rough when I was growing up. I don't mean rough you know, in terms of people sorting in the street. I mean, it was just very smoky. It was completely industrial. And all the factories were steaming you know, coal. Everything was sooty and therefore rather drab. And all the houses were mottled. The, the red brick was mottled with the signs of smoke. And I think that's all improved a lot.
0: When I was at The Guardian um, and I did in-house training, I had to do a month. On the Stockport Express, there.
1: <laughs> I used to work on the desk at the Stockport Did Express you? when I was a, when I was a sixth former. I had to have a job in the holidays. I worked on the desk at the front, and I used to take all the matched, hatched, and dispatched announcements. And I remember. It was extremely boring to do, but it had a personal interest. And when you'd put in an entry into a provincial paper, you put a little rhyme about whatever it was, you know, if someone had done. And so it became my poetic outlet, was to recommend a bit of Shelley, a little bit of Wordsworth, perhaps, and so on.
0: So you, at six-form age, already had an idea, an idea for maybe a career in journalism?
1: No, no, not at
0: all. I knew
1: that I wanted to get away from Stockport smoking chimneys as well but also a rather tense family life in that my mother's frustration at being born intelligent and not able to make her way had rather driven her into a sort of internalised depression which she took out on me so we had an enormously stressful relationship and uh, as a consequence I just said get away, you must get away apart from which I've been exposed to a lot of American films during the war which I watched with Total adoration and thought there is a big world out there, you must get and see it. So, getting away was an enormous motivator for me.
0: Do you carry that sense th- or have you carried that sense through your life? Do you still feel it now? The idea of getting away, do you ever feel you've got to the place?
1: Yes, I've found I've got to a place which I hadn't intended, but which being here, I like. So, I've arrived, it sounds like an Eliot poem, doesn't it? <laughs> I've arrived at a place and known it for the first time. Um, and so I'm. I'm well, you have to be. By the time you're in your 80s, you've got to be satisfied with where you are or right? your life would be wretched. And it has come about largely by my own choosing and my own willfulness, if you like, because I've never hung around where I don't want to be. If I've ever found myself in a happy place, I've tried to change it. And I've, in fact, always said that to my children or, indeed, anyone who asks my advice. If you go to bed at night thinking well today was really wretched and a waste I haven't got much life but I've wasted today then you must wake up in the morning and do something to make it different because you can go on being wretched or you know having a job you don't enjoy and I'm not suggesting people should throw up a career and try another one I'm suggesting tiny changes that might make life more tolerable I'm never settled for a life I found intolerable
0: so when life was intolerable, when you were in, in Stockport, how did you see your way out? And did you know people before you who had taken I, that path? I knew
1: there was something called a university, mm-hmm. which was not known to either of my families. So I knew that the way out was to go to something called a university. And in my pig-headed way, I thought I'd better find out which is the best and they were called Oxford and Cambridge. I had no idea where they were, what they looked like, but someone bought me, a school friend, bought me a book of pictures of Cambridge. And I remember thinking, well, it's clearly paradise. I'd just go there. I don't know what goes on, but I want to walk those streets. And then I talked to my teachers. I did rather well in the school certificate. And the teachers began talking in the sixth form about where you would go to university. And I started saying, Cambridge? And they looked a little taken aback because there was only one girl that had ever been to Oxbridge before me and they thought, well, it's a bit uppity. I mean, she thinks she can do it. we better help her. And so they, they did help me in a rather trusting way because they were not sophisticated teachers. I mean, they didn't... They taught you the stuff they'd been taught. So they weren't up to date, but they were keen... And they backed me and that's what I needed because my mother had a slight resentment that this was my ambition. She kept saying, there's a a university in Manchester, you know, and you could live at home. And I thought that's one reason for not doing it. (laughs) Um, and indeed, a fine university. And uh, my friends went to places like Liverpool and Leeds. There was a, a crop of us in the sixth form when we went to university. But I was the one who pitched my tent for Cambridge. And I got an interview, and I was only 16, and I think Cambridge, they wanted to look at why would somebody for 16 be even applying? So they looked me up and down um, and sent me away and said, "Come again next year," which I did. And, and I only just scraped in, but with my persistence. They wrote and said, well, we, it looks as though the, the history syllabus is full. And with, within 24 hours, I wrote back and said, might there be a gap in the economics faculty space? And they said, well, there happens to be one. Yes. Would you like it? So I found myself reading economics. I never studied. I did hardly knew what it was. <laughs> but I found myself studying it in my rest of my remaining year at, at, um, in the sixth form to find out what it was. And I'm quite glad I did because I, it is very interesting. And, of course, it's been a bedrock of life ever since. I mean, you know, the whole kind of post-war and Keynesian drama of the welfare state and so fed all my Cambridge teaching, which was a stronghold of Keynesian thinking, and is proving
0: useful now. And I sit in the Lords going, I'm sure I don't think that's a very good idea. When you, when you got that first rejection from Cambridge, did that galvanise you or did it? upset you? I've always taken a rejection as a challenge. I've never sat down
1: and thought, oh dear, what a pity, i better go and, you know, milk cows or something. I've always thought a rejection is a challenge to get round it, and that's, it appeals to a slightly competitive, slightly awkward squad attitude, which comes of having to deal with a depressive mother which is you're not allowed to do this, that and the other. There has to be a way around this problem. So that's how I've gone about everything, really. The moment somebody says, you can't do it, I think, yes, I wonder how I can. And that's really quite a useful thing because it's entirely individual to me. It's not a school of thought. It's not a process. It's not a career trajectory of any kind. It's just temperament and that's been very useful. I see it now. I mean, I didn't recognise it at the time. I just behaved like that. The number of times I've done that have paid off for me.
0: And when people react to that, is it with surprise, particularly when you were a young woman and from, from Stockport and, and, and...
1: Well, going up to Cambridge from Stockport with I had a, a broad, not broad, but a very strong and very particular, probably unattractive Stockport accent. And of course... I went to Newnham, only two girls' colleges at the time, and uh, Newnham and Girton were where the the children of Bloomsbury went. You know, they were uh, often privately educated, certainly enormously self-confident, charming, very well-informed and delightful, but I certainly was not one of the crowd. So I set about trying to be as conformist in their terms as I could. And obviously paid off, because since then, one or two of them have said, what's all this rubbish about you coming to Cambridge and not fitting in? You were always one of them. Everybody was, you know. That, it helped to be quite pretty, because there were not many women's colleges, and there were thousands and thousands of men looking for women. So it helped if you were half-decent to look at. And
0: I played that card a bit too as well. <laughs> Good for you. Um, what, was your, uh, what were your first steps in conforming, do you think?
1: Well, I certainly wanted to belong to the sort of groups of people who were thinking about things. Thinkers and ideas really attracted me. And I would go to lots of lectures that were nothing to do with economics. I went, I went to hear um, Pevsner talk about architecture. I went to hear Levis talking about Orden. So I just go because it was interesting. And I feel the same. I'm, I still sign up for stuff I don't know anything about.
0: Have there been periods in your life where you have, just by sheer circumstance, not been able to do that, not been able to learn or to, to go to lectures?
1: Well, when you join the BBC, either as a, on the staff or a freelance, you are expected to follow the system. And the system wasn't very fluent. I went as a studio manager and that put me in one particular category of people. Completely wrong. So I left. Now I'd got sort of slightly naive ideas that I'd wanted to improve the world. And I thought, I must find jobs where I can do that. So I thought I could become a teacher. And I became a supply teacher for a while and learned very quickly that it didn't suit me, that I I liked controlling things too much and children, you can't control them, you have to go with them. So I was hopeless at teaching. So I tried that. I tried advertising and I became a copywriter. I quite enjoyed doing it, and I was good at it, but I had a high moral disapproval of its purpose. I knew that it was selling things that people couldn't afford, that they didn't need, and that this was the beginning of consumerism, and I was spotted it from the start. I learnt how advertising works, and somebody said the other day, but didn't you see it? The advertisements were everywhere. I think it was Bob Dylan at the O2, and I said, how could I miss Bob Dylan? They said, the advertisements were everywhere, and I had learnt to close my mind to advertisements. So I don't see them, because I know they're wicked. So I do not look at advertisements. I miss Bob Dylan.
0: Um, But in questioning the system, that seems to be something that you've, you've done throughout your life, in terms of questioning whether you should go to Oxbridge, questioning where you fit within that, that role, yes, and even I mean, in advertising, you're questioning its role, its purpose. I've always followed my own
1: impulse. I do think there's a sort of a gut impulse in your own life, in your own spirit, that tells you, and you might be doing it almost without a realisation you're doing it, but for example, when I would give up a job, I would giving it up because it wasn't it didn't suit me, it didn't match, it wasn't right. And I wasn't frightened of walking away from stuff. Or oh, indeed, I was um, shy of settling down and really learning how to be a teacher. I suddenly thought, I know I'm not going to be good at this. And that was something else. I like to be good at things, or at least passable. I don't like to be a failure at something. And I was a, really a, a serious failure as a teacher. And it was sad for me. So don't stay, Go. I was good at advertising, but it pricked my conscience a lot. But on the way, I learnt lots of things. I learnt in advertising, how to write sentences. I learnt how to edit. I like how to say things in three words instead of 20. And it's always been useful as a journalist. It really has. Now, one of the other impulses had been I wanted my way of life to have a certain harmony to it. And I quickly saw, being in London, that the daily commute was a sort of death sentence. I mean, it was like Metropolis. So I saw all this commuting going on, and I thought, well, that's people are wasting two hours of their day. I've always been haunted by the shortness of time. So I knew I wanted work that didn't involve commuting. So freelance became what it was called, how to do it. And I'd been, as a studio manager, seeing p- people arrive, go into a studio, read a, a talk, and leave with a cheque for three guineas was in those days. And I thought, that's very nice. That fits in rather well. Because by then I was married and I had a my first child was born when I was 24. So I was doing the orthodox, that's the conformist bit that I did, which was to get engaged, ring on finger, marriage, white wedding. And so I thought being freelance and being a mother will work.
0: Were well, you aware... Uh at all these points that you were part of a very new generation or does any generation recognize that at the time but your generation feels particularly new well it didn't because
1: I went to Newnham and Newnham had been founded by the Fawcett I mean you know that's where it all began the women's university colleges so uh, the whole background of people in Newnham was we are the young we, we are the new women you know we are the Heirs of all those suffragettes. Some of them were principals, amazingly distinguished women academics. So I didn't feel that that part of the generation was changing. What I felt, I was the inheritor, that I was part of a long pattern of how women thought of their lives. They were serious minded, rather high minded, probably a little humorless, I'm not sure. But the sense of that you were part of this huge stream of women achieving. I I was really proud of that and I thought they were tremendous and many of them went on to do amazing things.
0: Marrying and and having a family so young, was that part of the same thing? Was that about achieving? Was that part of your background in Stockport?
1: That, That sort of solved my naivety about sex and sex life i mean i had a rather occasionally giddy time at cambridge but it was very much borne in on me and i and accepted it i'd seen this in hollywood movies you know that you you got married and lived happily ever after i was a sucker for romantic novels i mean i don't mean um, trashy novels i'm talking about the brontes you know reader i married him and that all appealed to me because it seemed to solve the problems my emotional problems coming from this rather rackety relationship with my mother I was available for someone who would be devoted to me and I was very keen on and did fall in love and so I was extremely happily married and happy to have children too and loved them.
0: And do you now see marriage has changed and women's lives are structured so differently how does that... The biggest
1: change that I've seen in my lifetime is the status of women. I mean it's unbelievable the changes that have gone forward. I find it staggering the way young people take uh, take for granted that they have rights and identities and freedoms. I think it's just wonderful. They are so liberated without even knowing they are which we always wanted. We wanted the rules to be broken in order that the next generation shouldn't know that there were any rules so it's been wonderful to see it happen absolutely tremendous I was in a, a slightly giddy way I was a set a part of the sort of 60s mood of you know freedom sex drugs and rock and roll only because I had the good fortune to join a program called late night lineup which was very pioneering, not merely on the screen, but behind the screen, where it was run by a whole lot of people, probably all of them under 30, and who took to the new culture and pop music and all that kind of beat generation, airs to the beat generation and so on. And that all enchanted me, I thought it was terrific. And we, have, we were given complete freedom, and we were defended, must give him credit, by the controller of BBC Two at the time, who was David Attenborough. And whenever we were assaulted by all the other uh, departments for attacking theirs, he would say, leave them alone. Leave them alone, they're my
0: gorillas. (laughs) Which uh, episodes or issues do you think were the most gorilla to you when you were recording? Well, I mean, just
1: off off screen, one of the things was that the pop groups used to come in and record. I mean, I'm talking about the Kinks and the Stones and Elton Even and just... Uh, the whole raft of the 60s groups would come and of course they brought in cannabis with them and everybody smoked cannabis and there was and i remember a note coming from david attenborough to the editor the note from david attenborough said could you advise your staff that the smells that are drifting from the studio in an afternoon will get them all into trouble so you know we were pushing the barriers but they weren't they were tolerated they were held within this great comfortable embrace that w- at that time was the BBC.
0: And it was quite unusual then, I'm sure a lot of people listening might not know this, but it was very unusual for a, for a young woman to be on screen at the time and, oh, and dressed yes, as were. you were dressed.
1: It was unusual. I wasn't made conscious of that in the programme. Within our group, every, equality reigned. Outside it, of course, there were no women reading the news at all. And there were one or two Reporters on a program called Tonight. The thing about my performance was that I was on about twice a week for seven years, given carte blanche to behave like myself. So that was what was unusual. But then we started to report on the rise of feminism and so on. And I went to see the head of news and said, I don't want any kind of job for myself, but you are going to have to have a woman read the news. Uh, And he said, I can tell you, Joe, never, under my rule, there will never be a woman reading the news. Never. And he was very downright, and I remember just leaving thinking, well, I've lost that one, OK. But within something like six or nine months, Angela Rippon had started to read the news late on, two. I think the first was Anna Ford read the news on ITV and the BBC went, ah better watch out do the same
0: and was there a feeling within the bbc then the 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 land was shifting
1: yes and i think there was always an a feeling in in the bbc of the 60s that the the ground was shifting but we must help shift it i mean we had ken loach as a director of films and directing those. Well, he wasn't. He wanted the ground to shift. Tony Garnett, who was his producer, he wanted the ground to shift. Um, Jim Allen was uh, doing things about industrial disputes and dramas, very left-wing, he wanted the ground to shift. So there was a feeling that the 60s was moving and we wanted to be part of it. We wanted to be part of it and to help it on its way. Probably in a rather loose, unspecified way. Um, uh, certainly in terms of sexual liberation and talking freely about what we believed.
0: I'm wondering how people back home treated you during this period. You're suddenly well known. You suddenly got wasn't such I, a look.
1: Life. Um, Late Night Lineup had an audience of about a hundred thousand. BBC Two wasn't widely distributed. It was black and white. Although I presided over the change in colour, so it wasn't mass entertainment of any kind. It had a following. It was a cult following, you think you might say, and we always well, we said we had the following we wanted, and they were very loyal to us. So we made a few headlines from being naughty, but we didn't in any way have a, a mass profile. That was
0: top of the pots and things like that. Ready, steady, go. So there were two things. I'm going to do that awful thing of asking you two questions before I forget them. The first one being, how important is it for broader societal change to have the types of programmes like that that might not have a huge audience, but nevertheless push boundaries forward? And then the other one is is the change from black and white to colour and what, what that brought? I always advise people who ask me how to get on into the, in the broadcasting
1: world to find hospital radio or prison radio. If you find tiny enclaves where they're only too glad if you offer them a free service, you can contrive new ways of doing things. They don't have to be revolutionary or of offensive in any way they just need to be unusual so i think it's important that there are these little enclaves where people can practice and of course make yourself get better make it more fun make it more unusual beat the competition and so on
0: and to have that sort of questioning drive that you had on that show um, the questioned authority and question the way that society had been structured, I guess, or the, the acceptable behaviours. Was that important too? And is that, well, that was, important? Well, that was
1: born of a good education. I mean, mm. it, I think it's the product of an educated mind is to question with informed evidence, and that's interesting to do, isn't it? I mean, I find it. I, I was putting a question today in the House of Lords. I remember thinking about why they've got this wrong. What what can I just draw attention to that perhaps they haven't thought of? And that's interesting to do. I mean, it's, it's problem-solving.
0: And I think that's really important. Is that one of the things that has allowed you to have such a diverse career? I mean, not only the House of Lords, not only journalism, but, you know, writing novels. Yes, has... I,
1: well, I think that's born of, I'd like to have a go at that. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's very simple. I've always wanted to, to try I mean, I quite like to have been a brain surgeon, but I couldn't have stood on my feet steadily (laughs) for two hours, which I know they do. So a job is construed in the way that you spend your day, literally how you spend it. Are you standing up, sitting down? Do you have time for meals? Do you meet a lot of nice people or do you get overcrowded? Do you have too many of these boring meetings that go on too long and you can't control? So you need to set up the physical circumstances in which you spend your time. And that will make you happy at the end of the day. And that's what the broadcasting has done. And, if it, and I have to say, the path I have taken has not always been at my behest. Indeed, my contracts have been terminated so often, I've always had to look for something else. So the, the programme might have come to an end, or I've got restless and they've felt that I wasn't doing what they wanted. So each time I've had to go away and think, invent something. Just go and invent something. Um, as to the change from black and black and white to color, well, I was doing a late night program which not many people watch, so they thought they could experiment on me. So they sent me out with the wardrobe mistress, wardrobe artist now. My vocabulary is very unwoke <laughs> um, and we wanted to try different kinds of clothes so we got stripy clothes and we got spotty clothes and we got bright clothes and we got white and we got red and each night I would wear them and which of course they were transmitted as black and white so that was satisfactory but the but the technicians were lining up the cameras which were color cameras
0: transmitting in black wow. and white and Do said like well, does
1: this work or does that work human d- test card and was a test card as it were oh, wow, yes. wow.
0: So Do you still was, think about that when you go on TV now? Do you still think about what you're going to wear in a similar way?
1: I'm always slightly conscious. I wouldn't wear very narrow stripes because they're still strobe, but mm. nobody cares anymore except I know you're not meant to have clothes <laughs> and strobe. So, um, yes, I, I've always, I pay attention to all of that because I've lived it with mm. people you know who worry about it. So even when I was presenting my programme, I did a programme from here on my laptop um, right through the lockdown, which was portrait artist of the week i knew to do my makeup before i did it and i knew not to wear strobing clothes i didn't need to be told
0: (laughs) you said about when you have had contracts terminated and you have just thought invent something how do you begin that process is there a little ritual to that or is it is it just panic well it's do you have a nice
1: conversation with yourself and your inner self about what you think you're really about what you have to offer, which might be rather um, overblown in your own self-estimation. So you have to really sit down and talk to yourself and think how would what I am able to do now and what I'm accepted for doing fit in with where I want to go. I'll give you an example. I was 70. And I knew it was a landmark time, and I had been broadcasting, but I wasn't. And I thought, what is it it I can do that would be acceptable at this age? So I phoned up Alan Rusbridger and said, the world is changing, and there's a whole generation of people who are older who want to work, and they have lives and needs which are not being addressed by journalism enough, and I'd like to write a column for The Guardian. He said, done. That's how I taught my way into the garden. But I invented that, you see. And, and that's what I've, I've done when I've been in a corner. I've never given up, but I've always thought you might have to adjust, change direction, but go with the flow and see what the world will make of you and will let you do.
0: Does that mean that you've come to like or enjoy the corner almost when you're in it and you, you've backed yourself Well, I
1: quite it. like a challenge and I quite like not taking no for an answer. And it's like that, you know, with cooking or holiday arrangements. If you can't get a place to stay, find a place to stay. <laughs> so I see that as a problem to solve. And I quite it's like a crossword, it's just fairly straightforward. It's a problem to solve, sit down and solve it.
0: I, I know that you've campaigned quite hard in terms of older women being on TV, being on screen. Um, it seems. To well, me- it was
1: interesting. One of the things that happened when I was, because I'd written about this column of being 70, was that I got phoned by Harriet Harman, who said the equalities bill is coming up, and the equalities bill doesn't outlaw discrimination on on basis of age, and I want to raise the profile of people who are older so that we can get that written into the bill. Would you do it? and I said yes I'll have a go so because of this network of people I knew I was able to place articles in the Guardian and the broadcasting and so on and became known as the voice of older people so people would ring me up and say there's an issue here will you come and talk about it and that was that was just something that interested me to do and of course in doing it I got invited to care homes and retirement villages to hospitals and so that became a different area of of life that interested me and and it's very useful now because of course there are more and more of older people and i can speak to that in the house of lords once in the house of lords i was invited to sit on the communications committee on one occasion they were saying we're looking for a topic what would be a topic that we could examine in depth and i said older women in current affairs oh, is there any issue they said they said what the public thought. Oh, the game's over. It's won. There are plenty of women. I've seen them on the screen for myself. There's no issue. I said, there certainly is. Let's examine it. And we we drew up a, a real, you know, 36 page report about it. And it went on the media. What was interesting was that all the sort of broadcasters, the BBC and the, the the big guns of ITV and other channels, all arrived and said, "It's perfectly all right. We're we've got it on the agenda. It's changing. We're building it into the system." Look, there's so and so, and here's so and so, and we said, "Fine." When we got the academics, they said, "Battle isn't begun to be won yet." So that made an interesting report.
0: How do you think the uh, what people see on screens or hear on on the radio? filters down in, into broader society how do how do you think it changes things to have more I women think it, different I think it races? matters
1: a lot I think it matters a lot when people in the public eye show themselves to be serious as well as giddy so I think that's tremendous and people like Emma Thompson really stick their neck out and get enormously uh, a lot of flack you've got to be able to take a lot of flack, but it's tremendous because she's you know these women are extremely well informed and full of character, so what you get from people who are high profile on television is usually an enormous amount of character and drive, which means that when they say something, the public Certainly, first of all, the press notice, not always approving me, but that doesn't matter, they make the headlines, and then the public notice it. And the public can um, say, well, we don't like them, they're jumped up, no perhaps some, some of them are, but that's no harm done. The message is out, think about this issue.
0: Do we still think that women are jumped up when they raise their voice?
1: <laughs> well, I don't. <laughs> Good, jump up as often as you can, is what I would say.
0: Do you think that how we expect women to look on screen has changed at all?
1: I think the place of how you look in the evolving status of women is very interesting because it was enormously important in the 50s and 60s to look pretty and to dress attractively so that you could get headlines about your wardrobe and what you wore and so on and how you made up your face. And that mattered a lot and it mattered to me because I was part of that culture. But I think what has happened since and which I rejoice in is that so many people have simply said, take me as I am, just take me as I am, or not. And suddenly everyone is saying, but she's such an attractive personality. You don't have to follow those kind of Hollywood dimensions that were so universal in the 60s. You can now look odd and strange, you can shave your head, you can wear your clothes up inside out, you can do whatever you like because it's what, who you are and what you say that, that now matters. And I think that's wonderful. And, of course, it applies particularly to older people because we now see sort of grey hair and wise and spectacles as really rather reassuring. Here are intelligent people who are not trying to be young and, and groovy, as the word once was. And that's, that serves us all very well.
0: I always think that when I go to music festivals, how different it is now that you have people of all ages and, and families that go together, you know, multi-generations. And it's an amazing thing it to see. It's
1: extraordinary, too, how much young people grow up to dress and be as they want. Mm-hmm. I've got six grandchildren. They're all highly individual, and I find that's it's a wonderful assertion of their own confidence.
0: We spoke at the beginning about how you had thought about getting out of Stockport or and, you know, looking at the uh, Hollywood movies and this romantic idea. At the point you are at now, in your very beautiful house in London, when you look back, are there things that you would change? Is there anything that stands out to you?
1: I've had two marriages. I was married for 17 years and then I was subsequently married for 25 years. Both marriages were very happy for a great length of time, but both went seriously wrong. And I didn't think I had the resources to know or resolve what the problems were of which I must certainly have been a contributing factor. So I don't know. They remain a mystery to me. I've lived on my own now for 20 years and enjoy it enormously. And it isn't simply a matter of having my own way, as my husbands might assert. (laughs) I think it's to do with self-confidence and reassurance at this stage in life. And so I don't regret not being married in the way I was, but I quite, I'm full of an admiration for people who have clearly very nourishing and balanced marriages. I didn't pull off for long enough.
0: Is that about the ability to change together?
1: I think, it, I think marriages are very hard, and I think each one is individual. And I think you can make generalizations, but then often the breast marriages are made by breaking them. So I think a happy match between one and another is relatively rare, and when it happens, it's a joy for them and all their friends. But nonetheless, um, I made a good shot at it for quite a long time, so I'm not really disappointed. <laughs>
0: So you've mentioned control a couple of times, and I wonder how much change that you can control is, is thrilling and exciting and, and full of possibility, but when change that you can't control arrives, how, how you handle that?
1: Well, you can't plough your way through life defying the world as it exists, because there are absolutes that you can't change. I mean, they're very basic ones like the environment and the, the nature of society around you. But you can seek to change it within the parameters of your own ability. I think if you seek to try to change too much, you will not achieve it, and therefore you'll be unhappy and create an unhappy situation.
0: You've mentioned your mother a couple of times and how you went on to have this multiple life that she was unable to have for whatever reasons. Do you feel that you have taken her with you regardless.
1: Yes, my mother's been ever present in my life. Basically, I was born into a happy marriage. My parents were very, very happy. I remember this as a toddler and the games we played and the laughter in the house all the time. I remember that. My sister came along, the laughter continued. As I became a teenager, and of course I realise now as my mother hit the middle life, I was getting ambitious to leave and she was unhappy about that. She wanted really to have me remain with her she had had to leave school at 13 she'd got a scholarship to a grammar school in manchester and she went there for a term but the family couldn't afford the uniform so she'd felt humiliated and her mother had had eight other children and needed her at home the eldest daughter in working-class homes always had to fetch in some income so when she wanted to leave the school my Uh, Grandmother wasn't sorry about that and sent her out to work where she trained to be a tracer. It was a skill that you don't have anymore because you've got electronic reproduction, but up came the job of the head tracer. And they explained to her very carefully that she wasn't eligible because she was a woman for the head job. So she took knocks all the way through that life, and she was talented. And when she saw mine not being blocked off, she was resentful... Uh, envious proud but that was very confusing for her and it accelerated a sort of inner depression which made things very hard for her and for everyone but I hadn't lost that the bond that we'd established very early so I could only be both resentful and resolute combative difficult and then she got leukemia uh, when I was in my mid-twenties and I found her dying terrible And when, I mean, other deaths in my family I've known were coming, I've somehow dealt with and felt and seen them being a good journey. But my mother's was terrible because she hadn't had the life she wanted and she hadn't had the daughter she wanted. And so I've grieved for her enormously. I wept for months and months because we'd never solved that problem, the nugget of that problem. So that has been part of my life. How much it nourishes or limits me, I have no idea, but the presence is very strong.
0: Toast podcasts are presented by me, Laura Barton, and produced by Jeff Bird. Toast is a British clothing and lifestyle brand that aspires to a slower, and more thoughtful way of life. To hear more episodes from this and former series, head to Toast magazine, which can be found at www.toa.st. If you enjoyed this podcast, please do like and subscribe.